delighted to be with you again, and I appreciate so much your presence this evening. I want to take just a moment to again express my appreciation for the invitation to come and to be the speaker in your meeting. There are others that you could have invited, and the fact that you invited me encourages me more perhaps than you may realize. I appreciate so much the hospitality that you've shown by having me into your home or taking us out for a meal, and we appreciate that, that uh, we recognize, Joan and I both recognize that there's time and expense that goes into that, and we greatly appreciate your hospitality. Appreciate the kind way in which you've listened and the kind comments that you have made about the studies, and I hope something has been said or done to help you as you make your journey toward heaven. And so tonight we're going to wind our series up. We've been talking about why we believe what we believe and why we practice what we practice, or why we don't believe certain things. And so we've looked at several things, why we believe it makes a difference, why we believe Jesus was raised from the dead, why we believe there is just one church, and why we believe miracles have ceased. We started with that this morning, and why we believe hell is real and eternal. And we're going to close with this study of why we do not believe once saved, always saved. Why do we not believe that? Why do we not believe the doctrine of once in grace, always in grace? Once saved, always saved. Let's explain the doctrine what it teaches, what it says, and what it's called. First of all, it's identified by several names. You may hear someone talk about once saved, always saved. Or they may word it, once in grace, always in grace. Or they may talk about the impossibility of apostasy. It's impossible to fall away from God. Or another way of wording that is the perseverance of the saints. You'll see the significance of that in a moment. And then the eternal security of the believer. Some will say, we believe in the eternal security of the believer. And what they really mean by that is it's once in grace, always in grace, or once saved, always saved. Now, what does this doctrine mean? What does this doctrine actually say? What this doctrine says is that once one becomes a child of God, that is, they're saved, however they become saved, most of those who believe this doctrine think that you either believe in the Lord and become saved, or God chose you to be saved unconditionally. We'll say more about that in a moment. But once you become saved, that you cannot lose your soul in hell. There's nothing you can do to lose your soul in hell. That's the doctrine. That there's no sin that will cause you to be lost, and that once you're saved, you cannot do anything to be lost. And I mean absolutely anything, and you'll see some quotations to that effect here in a moment. Who believes this doctrine? Is this kind of a remote thing? If you're not familiar, you're foreign, strange, uh, uh, tribe over here that believes that or some kind of uh, group of people that are odd. Well, who believes that doctrine? Well, I want to suggest to you there are several that believe that. The Presbyterians believe that. I'm not misrepresenting them. I don't mention them derogatorily. I'm just simply suggesting that's their doctrine. They believe in the full-fledged concept of Calvinism. And so they believe this doctrine of once in grace, always in grace. They're not the only ones. There are many Baptists that believe that. There are those that are the primitive Baptists, or in some places they're referred to as the hard shells, or in uh, some places they're called the old regulars. You may go into Kentucky, for example, and they'll talk about those Baptists over there, the old regulars. And you say, what does that mean? That means they're primitive Baptists. That's all that means. Or someone may say, I'm an old hard shell Baptist. What he means is I'm a primitive Baptist. They believe in the full-fledged concept of Calvinism. But there's, they're not the only ones. There's some neo-Calvinists. Uh, so to speak, and they don't buy the whole system of Calvinism, but they buy a part of that, the Southern Baptists and the Missionary Baptists. Most of our brethren, when they have debated some Baptist preacher, they have been among the Missionary Baptists, not many among the primitive, though there have been a few. There are many denominations that hold to some variety of this concept, but those are some of the primary ones that believe the doctrine. 
Now here's the constitution of the Presbyterian church. Whether you realize that or not, or whether the people who go there realize that church has its own creed. And here's what their creed book says. The creed book, that is the constitution of the Presbyterian church, says that they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can, notice this, neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. What they're saying is that once you become saved, there's nothing you can do to lose the grace of God. You're once saved, you're always saved. Well, here's Hiscox manual, the standard manual for uh, Baptist churches. We believe that the scriptures teach that such as are truly regenerate, being born of the Spirit will not utterly fall away and perish, but will endure unto the end, and that their persevering attached to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from the superficial professors, that is, a special providence which watches over their welfare, etc. In other words, you can't fall from grace. But listen to this quotation. This one's been quoted many times. This goes back many years ago, more than 50 years ago. Sam Morris uh, the pastor for the First Baptist Church in Stamford, Texas, said this in a track or booklet that he called, Do a Christian Sins Damn His Soul? Here's what he said. We take the position that a Christian sins do not damn his soul. The way a Christian lives, what he says, his character, his conduct, and his attitude toward other people have nothing whatsoever to do with the salvation of his soul. Watch this. All the sins a Christian may commit from idolatry to murder would not put his soul in any danger. You think about that. Not anything that he does from idolatry to murder. Well, if the doctrine be true, that is true. You could commit murder. You could, uh, as one uh, denominational preacher in debate said, I could have a thousand women or I could kill a thousand men and it doesn't endanger my soul. Because once saved, always saved. So what does this doctrine say again? Well, let me remind you again. It says that once you become saved, you cannot lose your soul. That a child of God cannot so sin as to lose his soul in hell. And furthermore, that sin may be, have many consequences, but it's not a salvation issue. Now, you may get, commit sin, and we'll talk about this toward the end, and you may even be put out of that church, but it doesn't affect your salvation. They can't have fellowship with you anymore because you're so sinful, but you're still going to go to heaven. That's not going to be affected at all. That's the doctrine of once in grace, always in grace. So now let's get back to our question. Why do we believe that that doctrine is wrong? Why do we not believe once saved, always saved? Well, here's the first. Because it's not taught in the Bible. We do not believe that doctrine because it's just not taught in the Bible. There are passages that teach the security of the believer. Now, when someone comes along and says, you do not believe in the security of the believer, their maturity of the believer, more about that. that is not what I believe. That's not what anyone here teaches. We believe in the security of the believer. More about that in a moment. I want to suggest to you there are no passages that teach that a child of God can commit any sin and yet it not endanger their soul in hell. There's not any passage in all of the New Testament that teaches that. And if so, the question is, where is that passage that so teaches you can commit any sin and it endanger your soul? So it's just not taught in the Bible. We've mentioned time and again, 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. I have the responsibility as I stand before you. Whatever doctrine I teach, to cite the book, the chapter, and the verse. Here's where you can find what I'm teaching. So if I'm going to teach the doctrine of once saved, always saved, I need to find the text. And there's nothing in the text that so teaches that. It's just not taught in the Bible. Now let's talk about Calvinism a little bit. And I want to make a point about John Calvin. He didn't originate all of the thoughts concerning Calvinistic thought, 
but he's the one that really packaged it and sold it. There were others that had this concept a little before him. But here's the concept of Calvinism. Calvinism has five basic points, can be remembered if you remember Tulip, and you know that. But the first major point of Calvinistic thought is total depravity. That is that man is born in sin and you inherit the sin of your parents and your grandparents all the way back to Adam. And so you're born in a sinful state, totally depraved. You can do nothing good. So you couldn't, you couldn't believe if you wanted to. You couldn't obey God if you tried because you're totally depraved. A second point about his doctrine was unconditional election. That's what the U stands for. That is God unconditionally saves you. There's nothing you can have to do in order to be saved. You don't even have to believe because you can't believe. There's not a thing you can do because you're totally depraved. Then there's another doctrine that says the L stands for limited atonement. This is where Jesus only died for the elect. In other words, God, before the creation of the world, went through the creation and said, I want you, you, and you, and you to be saved and the rest of you be lost. That's limited atonement. He only died for some. So if you're lost, it's because Jesus did not die for you. And if you're saved, it's because Jesus did die for you and you had no choice in the matter. There's nothing you could do. Then there is irresistible grace. That is the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to operate upon you to put faith in your heart because you're totally depraved. You can't act. See how it all goes back to that concept. And then we have the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That's the doctrine we're talking about, which simply means once saved, always saved. Calvin understood was this doctrine, these doctrines are all consistent. That if you buy into this doctrine, you have to really buy into all the rest. If you buy into total depravity, you have to buy into all the rest. But what I want to suggest to you, when I say it's not taught in the Bible, when Calvin packaged that and those just before him were developing some of these ideas, that's far too late to be in the Bible. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. It's just not taught in the Bible. So why do we not believe once saved, always saved. Because the Bible teaches that a child of God can sin and lose his soul in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. Now let's talk about what the issue is here. I'm convinced that when we talk about differences in religion, we need to clarify the issue. Because a lot of the discussion when it comes to religious debate is clouded by mischaracterizing the issue. So let's clarify what the issue is. The issue that is at hand is, is it possible for a child of God to so sin as to lose their soul in hell? That's the question. The question is not an issue of whether there is security. Quite often we're charged, well, you folks believe that you can fall from grace and you feel like that every time you commit sin, you're falling from grace. Y'all don't believe in security. You don't believe in assurance. I believe in assurance. I believe there is security. We're going to see that in a few moments. But that's not the issue. That's misrepresenting the issue. It's not an issue of whether a faithful child of God will be lost. He will not be lost. We're talking about one that becomes unfaithful and continues to practice sin. Will they be lost? Now, I encourage you to get a Bible. And let's start by looking at some passages now that we need to focus upon that teach that one can lose their soul in hell. Let's start with Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 4. Most of these passages will be familiar to you. And I want to begin listing some very simple passages that show it's possible to lose your soul once you become saved. Now notice that verse 4, you become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. It is argued by those who believe this doctrine that if they fall from grace, that shows they were never there to start with. 
Well, what that means is when you, when you hear a report of someone falling off of the house, that means they were never on the house in the first place. That's what that means. Is that what, is that, what that means? Or someone falls off the horse, that means he never was on the horse. No, the fact that you fall off of the house means you were on the house. If you fall from grace, you were in grace. And it's possible to fall from the grace of God. It's possible to lose the grace of God. Now let's go back to Galatians chapter 2 beginning at verse 11. And let's notice the case of Peter. When Peter acted as a hypocrite and would not eat with the Gentiles, that now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those of the circumcision. Now the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now notice verse 14. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew and live in the manner of the Gentiles and not the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as the Jews. Now I want you to notice that he saw that Peter was to be condemned, verse 14. The American Standard uses this word condemned. Peter stood to be condemned before God. In other words, his action of hypocrisy was something where he stood condemned before God. He was to be blamed, the text says. He was to be blamed or he was to be condemned. That means he stood to lose his soul. Let's go down to Acts chapter 8. Here is a case in point. By case in point, when someone says, we're not talking about just theory, we're going to show you, as one little boy said, where they already went and done it. Here is one who apostatized or he departed from the grace of God. And this is the case of Simon. And I want you to notice about Simon, that Simon had offered to buy the... In other words, your money perish with you. You stand to perish before God, verse 20. Notice in verse 22, he told him to repent therefore of this wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart be forgiven you. He needed to repent in order to be forgiven. It wasn't automatically forgiven. There was a need for forgiveness. And furthermore, notice verse 23, he was in the bond of iniquity. So I'm learning that in the case of Simon, Simon sinned. He stood to perish. He would not be forgiven unless he met a condition before God, and he's in the bond or bound up in iniquity, bound up in sin. That doesn't sound like one who is once saved, always saved. Now let's go to the text that was read to you a few moments ago. And so this time, let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, beginning at verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 26. And what I want you to see is, Quite often someone said if they fell away, that means they were never saved to start with. They were never saved. That just means they were superficial, as one of the um, quotations a moment ago said. Um, they're superficial. They were never true believers. Let's see if these people were saved. Let's, back, let's drop down a little bit before we get to verse 26. Let's go on down to verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. That sounds like salvation, doesn't it? Here's the blood by which they were sanctified. So that tells me they have been saved. But now notice at verse 26, this now is one who is sinning willfully after they've received a knowledge of the truth and there is no more sacrifice for sin. They've rejected Christ. There's nothing else they're going to have. They pass him up. Not another sacrifice is coming. 
What should they do about judgment? There is a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which should devour the adversaries. As they look toward judgment, they should fear judgment. Not if once saved, always saved is true. But those in this text were to look toward judgment with fear because they've sinned willfully even though they were already in a saved condition. Now notice verse 28 and 29. They're worthy of punishment worse than death. Anyone who rejected them at verse 28, Moses, law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will be thought worthy who hath trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? They're worthy of worse punishment than death. So here is again a case in point. You will sin willfully. You're going to look toward judgment with great fear. Now let's go to chapter 3, same book. What Paul is doing in the book of Hebrews is warning them of the danger of letting these false teachers that are bringing persecution upon them cause them to leave the Lord. Notice what he said. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. What I'm learning from that, it's possible that one can become an unbeliever and they can depart from the living God. No longer are they in a relationship with God. Paul would warn in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1 that in the last time some would bring a doctrine and they would cause people to depart from the faith. There are some who have deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons and they're departing from the faith. And if faith is essential to be saved, some neo-Calvinists think so, they're departing from the very thing that would save them. And so they're departing from the faith. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 19. This is an interesting picture. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and notice in verse 19 that having a good conscience which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. One of the greatest pictures of utter destruction, that their faith has been made shipwreck. It's utterly destroyed. And so some can make shipwreck of their faith. Now this one's an interesting text that you hear quoted many times in James chapter 5. So let's turn to the book of James chapter 5. And as you're turning there, what I'm trying to do is compound the evidence. I want you to see particularly younger ones who've not heard much maybe, or it's been a while since you've heard something about this doctrine, that there is an abundance of evidence. We're not going to notice them all. Jacob's right. If we looked at every passage that taught it, we'd be here all night. But we're not going to do that. We're just getting a sampling of that. Look at James chapter 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, that is, they've been in the truth, they wander from the truth, and someone turns him back, that is, he comes back to the truth, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his way and will save a soul from death. That's interesting. Calvinism would say, oh yeah, he may wander away and it'll be in sin and he may come back and start doing right, but he never loses his soul. No, you save a soul from death. Separation from God is what you've done. And so their soul is in danger of death. Now let's go to one more passage along that line. In 2 Peter Chapter 2, we talked this morning a little bit about these false teachers in 2 Peter and in also in the book of Jude. There are some who reach the point their latter end is worse than the beginning. Here's a picture of apostasy. For if after they've escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that sounds like somebody that's saved, doesn't it? They've escaped the pollution of the world through knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse than the beginning. 
But what a graphic picture follows. For it would be better for them had they not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered them. But it was to her wallowing in the mire. Here is one that was cleansed and now they've come back and they've corrupted themselves again and their latter end is worse than the beginning. So here are a number of passages that tell us that it's possible to so lose your soul, so sin as to lose your soul in eternal hell. Well, let me raise a question. Is it possible, and I would ask my friends who believe this doctrine, is it possible that a child of God could lie? Or is that impossible? Those who are saved, those who come into a saved relationship, is it possible for them to lie? Or is it if they tried to lie, they couldn't do it? They couldn't if they tried. They're trying to lie, they, they want to lie, and every time they try, they just can't do it. Is that impossible? Or can they tell a lie? Revelation 21 and verse 8 says, All liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So if it's possible for a child of God to lie, he's going to have his part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. He could lose his soul. All right? Is it possible for a child of God to commit murder? Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to heaven. Or is it that if you are a Christian, a child of God, you've been saved, you tried to kill somebody, you tried to shoot them, you tried to stab them, you tried to run them, you, there's no way possible you couldn't kill them if you tried. You say, well, no, that's absurd. You, they could do that. Well, those who do that don't go to heaven. That means it's possible for a child of God to so lose his soul. Is it possible for a child of God to get drunk? Drunkards will not have their part in, in heaven. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What about those who steal? Is it possible for them to steal or it's impossible? They're trying to steal the money. They see it, and every time they reach for it, it's impossible. Oh, no, it's possible, isn't it? Could they commit the sin of fornication? Well, then why the warning given to Christians in 1 Corinthians about fornication? It was warning them it's possible for them, which means they could lose their soul because those who commit such sins shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Can a child of God do that? And the answer is obviously yes. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to come back to this question of assurance. I want us to see that we have assurance and security, but it is conditional. It's not unconditional. Where God chose our salvation, we had nothing to do with it. I might not have been chosen, but if I was, God did that and there's nothing I can do. But it is conditional. You are familiar with etc. But I want you to know something, graces. We often focus on this, that we add to faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, etc. But I want you to know something in the context. Let's start back at verse 5. For this reason, very reason, giving all diligence. You might underline that in your Bible. That means giving the best you can. Doing the best you can. Putting every effort forward. He's going to use that phrase again. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. And what does that suggest? Every one of the Christian graces in this context are things that are relative in their nature. Have you thought about that? Meaning they're varying degrees. Knowledge. None of us ever are perfect in knowledge. Never will be perfect. But we have greater knowledge than we have at other times. Maybe we have more than someone else or less than someone else. They're varying degrees. Same thing with love. Same thing with all of these. Kindness. They're varying degrees of that. And so what I mean by they're being relative, the question is, am I doing the best that I can do? I might have more or less knowledge than you have. I might have more or less love than you have. But am I doing the best that I can do? Am I putting every effort forward? Now, with that in mind, let's read the text. For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. 
Now notice the assurance. For if these things are yours and abound, you're doing the best you can, you're growing, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to grow and you're going to produce. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sin, the one that's not working at it. Therefore, brethren, verse 10, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. You see, you can make your calling and your election sure. You can have some assurance about your salvation. The fact that I can sin and lose my soul doesn't mean I don't have any assurance. Let's go further. Make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. If I'm taking my faith and I'm adding to that virtue to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, timber, and I'm working continually on that, I've never mastered any of those. None of us have. So keep growing and keep developing. And if these are yours and abound, if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That sounds like assurance to me, doesn't it, Jesus? We do have assurance. Is it possible to lose our soul? Absolutely, but we do have assurance. Now, why do we believe or not believe once saved, always saved? It's not taught in the Bible. The Bible teaches that a child of God can sin and lose his soul. We do not believe this doctrine because of the consequence. Now, we mentioned this earlier this week, that any doctrine you hold, whether it's the truth or error, there are going to be consequences that go with that, and we have to be willing to accept that. For example, if we believe the doctrine that Jesus is the Son of God, we have to buy the consequences that go with that. That means that the doctrine that says he's not the Son of God is false. I'm willing to buy that consequence, aren't you? That means that whatever he said is true. I'm willing to buy that consequence. Or baptism is essential. I'm willing to buy the consequence. That means then the people who are not baptized will be lost. That's a consequence. There are consequences to this doctrine that if we believe that, we have to hold to the consequence. Like what? Well, here's one consequence. A Christian can commit any sin from idolatry to murder and still go to heaven. Now, I'm wondering how many people who hold to this doctrine, we believe once saved, always saved, really believe that a Christian can commit murder and still go to heaven. That's one of the consequences. We have to buy that. It would also mean this, that a good moral person who doesn't believe will be lost while an immoral believer will be saved. Isn't that interesting? This is one of our believers over here. Yes, he's immoral, killing people, but he's going to be saved. This good moral neighbor of mine, no, he doesn't believe in Christ. He's going to be lost. That'd be one of the consequences. Here's another consequence. That sin has no consequences for the child of God. Now, they would argue with that. They said, oh, yeah, they're, they're temporal consequences. It just doesn't affect you. It doesn't have any eternal consequence. And so just shrug your shoulders if this doctrine is true. So, so it was sin, big deal. <laughs> it doesn't affect my salvation. Who, who's worried about sin? It means that a child of God can quit going to church. They could attend the church of Satan and worship Satan himself and still go to heaven. That's one of the consequences. It means that all liars will not have their part in the lake of the fire. Revelation 21.8 is wrong. You can tell a lie and still go to heaven. Tell repeated lies. Tell nothing but lies and still go to heaven if you've already been saved. And so we have to be willing to buy those consequences. Now, this may look like confusion, but I want to explain this chart before you. I credit A.C. Grider. Some of you are old enough to remember Brother Grider. In his late years, he came and worshiped with us where I was preaching in Louisville and got to, uh, closer to him as the, in his late years. 
But he spent a great deal of time debating this doctrine with denominational preachers. And he made this chart to demonstrate that once one comes into the realm of salvation, he has a straight shot to heaven, meaning he doesn't have to worship, he doesn't have to pray, he doesn't have to attend, he can commit any sin, and he'll never be lost. So once you reach salvation, you've got a straight shot to heaven. You don't have to be in any church or do anything. And he said, some people, though, will make a detour, and they may go through some denomination and join it, and they still go to heaven, but they don't even have to do that. They don't have to be in any church. They could detour and go through the Catholic Church or the Seventh-day Adventist. Or they could detour and go through the Baptist church. And he presented this as he's dealing with Baptist doctrine. And if you do that, though, you have to have baptism and the Lord's Supper to be in the church. But you can go to heaven without that. But to be in the Baptist church, you have to have this. You might be a good member. You might be a bad member. You might live right. You might live wrong. And you're still going to heaven. You might live so bad that you would be excluded from the church. They'll put you out of the church, but you're still going to heaven. You've got a straight shot to heaven. That's how the doctrine works. That's how the doctrine works. Now let's close by looking at this. I want to suggest to you that this doctrine explains a lot of things. This doctrine explains a lot of things. It explains why some people live as they should. Now listen to me carefully before I get into this. I have met members of the church who have friends who believe this doctrine. Or maybe they've married someone who believes this doctrine. And then they're appalled at the way those people live. And I try to explain, that's their doctrine. It, it fits. And they're just, I can't understand that. You knew that before you married them. You knew that's what they believed. You knew that was their doctrine. You should have known that. And so here's how it works. It explains a lot of things. There are those who claim to be Christians who believe this doctrine. They act pious. They act godly. They go to church most of the time, or at least some. They talk about Christ. They talk about loving God. They have a Bible. They're reading and studying their Bible. They look like pious, godly people, and yet they will do anything they want. You may catch them stealing. You may catch them in a lie or cursing or cheating or committing fornication, and they still think everything's okay, and they claim they're right with God and some of their friends are scratching their head. I just don't get that. I do. That's their doctrine. That is their doctrine. That's what they believe. That's, that explains how, why they live like they live. They believe this doctrine. There's nothing you can do to endanger your soul. Now, if you were to believe this doctrine, what are you going to do the next time you face some temptation? Now, just for illustration, let's just suppose that I was standing before you trying to convince you this doctrine is true instead of it being false. And suppose I did convince you. You said, well, you know, I didn't notice that, but the Bible does plainly teach once saved, always. What if you walked away tonight believing that doctrine to be true? How would it affect you? What about the next time you're tempted to tell a lie? Would it make any difference? You bet it would. You bet it would. Especially if it's going to get me out of any, it's not a salvation. This is no big deal. This is no big deal. I'm going to tell this lie. I can ask God that uh, forgive me of that, but I really don't need that because I'm not going to be lost. See, what are you going to do the next time that you're tempted to steal or the next time that you're tempted to lust or the next time you're tempted to fornicate or the next time you're tempted to drink? What if in a moment of heated temptation, you're thinking about, I, I, I probably shouldn't commit this sin of fornication, but what's the big deal? It's not a salvation issue. Or what if you really hated somebody and you think, man, if I could just take them out and put them away and not get caught, why not? See how that doctrine works? It explains a lot, doesn't it? 
If this doctrine is true, it explains why people do what they do. How can this doctrine not affect how people live? How can it not affect? And I've known of Christians who would marry someone who believes this doctrine and they don't think, oh, it won't affect how they live. How can it not affect how they live? How can it not affect how a person conducts themselves? So what have we seen? While we don't believe, once saved, always saved. It's just not taught in the Bible. The Bible teaches just the opposite. A child of God could so sin as to lose their soul. There's some serious consequences that go with this doctrine. And we see that this doctrine explains a lot of things about why people do what they do and how, why they conduct themselves as they do. Hopefully that and the rest of the series has been helpful to you. Um, I trust in answering the question of why these are fundamental studies, but I hope that's been helpful to you in your study of, of God's Word. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?